0: Jericho Road is a podcast and a Sunday school class and a ministry of St. Luke's Episcopal Church in Birmingham, Alabama. These days, we're looking at the world of Jesus as it is told by the Gospel of Mark. We hope you'll join us. Well, hey, everybody, welcome back to Jericho Road. In the season three, we've been looking at the world of Jesus as it is seen through the eyes of the Gospel of Mark, and I hope that by using, gosh, the land and some history. We might get you seeing the Gospels in a new way. These days, I've been talking to my congregation about starting points. We always need to check our starting points. Starting points have everything to do with where you end up, where you start, has everything to do with how you think and how you process and where you go. And this might help us understand the excitement of Jesus landing like a lightning bolt in this place that we call the Galilee. In their world, their starting point was their religion, and that's a good thing. Their religion meant that their laws would keep them pure and apart, uh, different in the way that the Bible asked them to be different. Their customs would give them an example to give down to the children, which would also be their ethics that they kept. And this would be really important in a region with lots of Gentile neighbors. There are, if you go to Israel today, you will find lots and lots of Roman archaeology, Roman places where Jesus just didn't go. Places like Tiberius or Schietopolis or Greek city-states like Hippos, Jesus, stayed away from those places because Galileans stayed away from those places, except when he didn't, which is what I want to talk about today. It's a Roman place that Jesus and his friends would visit, and I want to ask the question why he was there and perhaps answer it in a way that's completely unexpected. Before I go there, though, I want to mention something about the land. This is something that the Bible doesn't really tell us much at all, but it's always fascinating when you go there. The land that Jesus would have known as Judea, what we call Israel today, is about the same size, and it's about the size of Alabama. So you can get your minds around this. Imagine Alabama sitting on three tectonic plates, which means that my city of Birmingham would be the absolute edge of the continent of Africa, and then go north about 30, 40 miles, and you've got the Jordan River splitting the tectonic plate of Europe on one side and Asia on the other which means that the Galilee would have in it African flora, fauna, the Sea of Galilee, Kinneret would be full of African fish, there'd be African critters around, African plants, but then you go just an hour's drive north and you've got cherry trees and brook trout. It's an absolute fascinating contrast of of land and in temperature and places and elevation and all that stuff. Well, we're told in Mark chapter 8 that Jesus and his friends went to a place called Caesarea Philippi or the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And if you go up into the north, there's a fascinating altar that sits out in the middle of a field. It's really hard to get to. The roads are, are bad. They're only cattle paths, really. And it's in the middle of a field of crops and and grazing cattle. But a brush fire in 1998 uncovered this altar, and it's an ongoing dig. It's huge. It's elaborate. And it was an altar Proclaiming that Caesar Augustus, emperor of the world, was a god. Now, on one level, this shouldn't surprise anybody because this is what the Romans did. It's a Roman thing, and and as I told you, there are lots of Roman there's lots of Roman archaeology in the Near East where Jesus didn't go. But we're told in Mark chapter eight that he wrote, walked right by this thing. It sat right alongside the ancient road to Damascus, and I like to play a game when I take my friends over there, which I call a get. A gets when you can read something in the Bible and then see it, or you can see something and realize that Jesus might have touched it or or some Bible story would have happened there. And placing this altar on the road to Damascus makes it sort of a double get. St. Paul would have ridden by it on his way to Damascus and his conversion, and then Jesus would have walked by it as he entered into the villages of Caesarea Philippi. It's a great backdrop for a question that he asked them because there's something deeply, deeply wrong with this altar. Now, I said it before, on the surface, it's just another Roman altar doing Roman things. But what makes this wrong is this altar was commissioned, built, and paid for by Herod the Great who styled himself king of the Jews. That was his title. Some irony there, right, with the sign above Jesus' head on Good Friday. But Herod proclaimed himself king of the Jews, gave the Hebrew people uh, an elaborate temple complex in Jerusalem that would be the wonder of the ancient world, a place where they could go three times a year to see the house where God lived, and yet he also pleased his masters. He always hedged his bets, and he built this altar to please the Romans in honor of Caesar Augustus. So here's the problem. In a world where starting points were to be different and to differentiate, the lines are blurred here in a gross and cynical way. So it's an excellent backdrop to a question that I'm going to read to you. It's Mark chapter 8, beginning with the 27th verse. I'll just read a few verses, and then we'll, we'll unpack it. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? They answered him, John the Baptist, and others, Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. He asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Messiah. And he sternly ordered them not to tell anyone about him. Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and three days rise again. He said all this quite openly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you're setting your mind not on divine things but on human things. So here in the backdrop of this sellout altar, right, Jesus asked the question, Who do people say that I am? Or another way to paraphrase this would be, What have you seen so far? He's landed in the Galilee to tell them that the time was fulfilled, meaning that heaven is around the corner, the kingdom of God is under our noses, The day of the Lord is not something you have to wait for when you die or wait for at the end of time, but God is in the midst of us now. There have been healings and miracles and sayings that are unprecedented. So they answer the question, well, people are beginning to say, you're John the Baptist or prophet, which is to say that he's a hero in the way that we all need heroes. These days, I'm always moved by remembrances that honor our first responders or our hospital workers who labor in the ICU or anybody who sacrifices for our behalf, our military, of course. We always need to thank them for their service, and we all need to be reminded that there are heroes in in our midst. And what is the line? Not all heroes wear capes, but yet they serve us. Well, they needed heroes in their world, too, especially in the shadow of a sell-out altar. I mean, this altar reminds them how they were all run by cheats and scoundrels, and so that lesson's a good start. But then Jesus turns the lens on him just a little bit. Great. Okay, they say, I'm a hero. Who do you say that I am? And it's here that Peter blurts out something more true than he knows. You're the Messiah, he says, which means that Jesus is more than a hero, or even the greatest teacher on earth, or the greatest guy that ever lived. He's saying that Jesus is a starting point. He's a starting point. And as such, now they should expect trouble in the way that God has always warned them when we're free and true and honest, we'll always run up against trouble. They should have known it's always been that way. I like to say that um, people living in the world of Jesus knew the Bible a lot better than we did. My, my archaeology pal, Don, said that illiteracy rates were pretty much universal in amongst the ancient Hebrews because you had to read in order to worship. You had to read in order to study God's Word, and they knew these stories. And one story that would have been in the backs of their minds, especially when it comes to suffering, would be that of the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah is an important prophet. We have, we have not only the words of Jeremiah, but we also have the history of what happened to Jeremiah. And history is called Jeremiah the weeping prophet, weeping because of what had become of Judah and how it had lost its way, weeping because of the destruction of Jerusalem was going to happen, but also weeping because of what they did to him. His ministry spanned five kings of Judah, from Josiah to Zedekiah and finally the destruction of the city, and his truth-telling prompted plots against him at home and Anatole and then in the temple. The problem was that Judah was inviting destruction because they just weren't different in the way that the Bible asked them to be different. Uh, They were chasing after false gods, and they were doing things like their neighbors, which means that they had the ethic of their neighbors. I mean, the whole point of religion, we Christians are the ones, American Christians are the ones that mess us up, and we think that faith is simply a deal we strike with God to either get what we want or get into heaven when we die. But in reality, God is asking for us to pray with our hands and our feet now to be different now. Heaven's coming. Count on that. Now, what can we do to build the kingdom of God now, to enact justice now, to be obedient now, right, to subsume our desires now? And so they were doing this sort of thing in Judah, and and it would get worse not only for them, but also for Jeremiah. As Babylon threatened invasion, Jeremiah continued to, to prophesy this destruction or this destruction of the world that they were bringing upon themselves the king's officials and the clergy finally convinced the king to execute Jeremiah, just to get rid of him, even as the enemy was drawing near. And so we're told in Jeremiah 38, so this is the book of the prophet Jeremiah, is both his words or God's words to the prophet and also what happened to him. Jeremiah 38 6 reads this So they took Jeremiah and they threw him into the cistern of Malchiah, the king's son, which was in the court of the guard, letting Jeremiah down by the ropes. Now, there was no water in the cistern, but only mud, and Jeremiah sank in the mud. What they were trying to do is they were trying to let him starve down there so that their hands would be free of innocent blood, which is exactly what happened to Jesus when he was crucified on a Roman cross. The high priest and the officials who tried him in a sham trial in the middle of the night wanted him gone, wanted him killed, but they wanted their their hands clean of the deed, and so they threw him down in a cistern. Let me tell you about cisterns. In a world with very little water, in any sort of Bible city or city that existed in the world of Jesus or before would have to have a water source it would either need to be near a spring or a well, but they would also have cisterns to catch the rainfall that would happen in the winter. The climate over there means hot, dry summers and cool, wet winters, and so you would collect that rain when you could, and cisterns were very, very, very important. And some of you know I was able to go to Israel for a couple of weeks this past summer, really got lucky. The borders had been closed, opened briefly. I had a letter of permission from the government to go over there, thanks to my buddies over there, and then it closed again right after I got back. So it was just a small window of time, which also means that these archaeology folks, they're busy working. They're finding things left and right, finding Bible things that are really exciting, and I'll tell you more about them in other Episodes, but also they're, they're unburdened by tourists and pilgrims and anybody uh, bothering them. And so I sort of had these people all to myself, which was remarkable. There is a dig. That's quite exciting and it's right outside of the old city walls of Jerusalem called the city of David, which is the old Davidic palace, if you will, of the kings of Judah, and then the city going down to the pool of Siloam down the hill. And they're finding stuff all the time. And so I was able to go behind a locked door to unlock the padlock, do not enter, took me in to a cistern. And this cistern is probably Quite probably the cistern that Jeremiah was thrown down into because it is the cistern of the king. It's the, it's the king's house, and this was the cistern of the king's son. And so I was able to stand in there and look up at this hole and imagine what Jeremiah must have been thinking when he thought he was going to die. Well, he ended up being pulled out by a court official, an Ethiopian eunuch, uh, saved the day. But here's the point Jeremiah knew trouble was coming, and they should have known that, Je- that trouble was coming. If a prophet faces pain and death for speaking the truth, much less a Messiah. But the story of the Bible has always been this. Yes, we will buy trouble when we are different in the way the Bible asks us to be different. We're going to run up against uh, the world. We're going to run up against uh, someone's economic interest. We're going to run up against power. We're going to run up against truth. We're going to run up against something Uh, But even though we might experience pain, God is always there. If we feel it, God feels it. That's one lesson. The other one is that on the other side of what feels like death itself, there's always resurrection. In the case of Jeremiah, yes, they would experience the destruction of Jerusalem, and they would be taken away in exile, but God would be with them. He would call a prophet, Ezekiel, to speak to them. Uh, Way out there, uh, a prophet named Isaiah would continue to speak to them words of comfort and hope, going home promises. Uh, They would maintain their identity. Lately, and I did this on my trip last summer, um, I've been thinking about the Philistines. You know, the Philistines are the bad boys of the Old Testament. They were the neighbors of the Hebrews down on the coast to, to the west of Jerusalem and to the south just a little bit. They had cities down there, and they were really competing for resources and land and I'm beginning to learn they weren't really that bad of a people. They were just just competing with God's people, and they had their own pantheon of gods. They were not Christian, uh, but rather just a displaced people that were trying to carve out their space. They disappeared when Jerusalem was destroyed. What I'm trying to say is that the Babylonians did some 600 years before Jesus to the Judeans what the Babylonians would do to everybody in that part of the world, which was to try to wipe them off the face of the earth take their best and brightest away to Babylon, mix up the local population with other people, and then they would have a unified Babylonian culture, a unified Babylonian uh, kingdom, a unified Babylonian world. That was the point, and the Philistines disappeared forever. But not God's people. They were able to stay different in the way the Bible asked them to be different. They were able to differentiate, and one day they were able to go home. So on the other side of exile, there's hope and restoration. On the other side of death, there's resurrection. In my last episode of, of Jericho Road, we talked about impurity. Jesus' first miracle is a really small one. His first healing's is a small one. He heals an old woman of a fever, which didn't seem like much, except then, in the book of Deuteronomy, this series of sermons from Moses uh, helping God's people uh, remember before they, they entered the land that God would give to them, He talks about fever as being an impurity, as a sign of of not being right with God or with each other. And so Jesus removes this barrier. Jesus removes impurities uh, that keep us from being in union with God and with each other. And when it comes to death itself, bones were particularly impure. Uh, A dead body or a dead person's bones could— land you uh, ritually defiled so that you couldn't be uh, properly in a space where you could worship God. And yet, with the resurrection of Jesus, even the bones now are made pure. There are no barriers between God and God's children, which would be us. Okay, so that's a pretty good lesson, right? Who do people say that I am? You're the Messiah, okay, that's going to buy trouble. It's in the shadow of a sellout altar. But it still raises a question that I asked at the very beginning I haven't answered yet. Importantly, why are they there? If Jesus, like a good Galilean, avoided Gentile places, why Caesarea Philippi? Well, I mentioned the geography and i mentioned that that in the north you've got a different climate and a different sort of tectonic plates in the north of judea there was a, is a mountain was a mountain that jesus knew and is a mountain today that sits on three borders the mountain is called mount hermon and it sits on the border of lebanon and syria and israel right up at the top and it's a real mountain The hills of Samaria in the middle of Israel are more like the Appalachian Mountains, which we might call mountains because we're Alabamians, but Mount Hermon is more like a rocky mountain with snow on it much of the year. So it's a a real mountain. It's the highest peak in Israel, and people ski there today. It's also one of the possible sites for something that happens in just the next chapter of Mark, which might answer the question why they were there. So Jesus and his friends entered the villages of Caesarea Philippi, Mark chapter 8, Mark chapter 9, something happens. So let me read it to you. This is Mark chapter 9, the second verse. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, led them up a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, such as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Then Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He did did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And then a cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud there came a voice This is my son, the beloved, listen to him. And suddenly, when they looked around, they saw no one any more, but only Jesus. Now, as I mentioned, there are two possible sights for this story of the Transfiguration, which is such a weird story, but it's so important that it's talked about in all four Gospels. It's a story that that occurs uh, everywhere. It's it's specifically in the first three and alluded to in the fourth. And so we we ought to deal with it and see if we can't unpack what happened. But they've got two places that are a possibility. One is Mount Hermon that I just told you about. The other is Mount Tabor, which is down in southern Galilee, down in the lower Galilee in the Jezreel Valley. And if you were to take a traditional Christian pilgrimage tour, most of these will take you to Mount Tabor, and they call it the Mount of Transfiguration. But there's a problem with it. First of all, it's it's far away from Caesarea Philippi, so Jesus and his friends uh, were not in that region just a few verses before, but now they're all suddenly way down in the south. And that's that's a possibility, but let me continue to unpack the problems with Tabor. It's not a high mountain. It's just a bump. I think they call it a monad, which is it's like a rock that sits out in the middle middle of the valley, and it's cool looking, but it's not really high. And there always have been people living on the top of it. There would be soldiers garrisoned up there to kind of look over the look over the trade routes, look over the roads, and there'd be people up there. So if Jesus were to take his friends to a quiet place apart, so that he could glow and be the smoke and the fire and the voice of God, it'd be hard to be left alone up on top of Tabor. What probably happened is that when late Romans began to travel to the Holy Land as Christian pilgrims, Tabor was chosen as a site because it sits strategically between Nazareth and Capernaum, making a convenient stop for them to learn the Bible stories and to reenact a pilgrimage, if you will. So there's a late Roman church that's been there from the very beginning. But let's go back to what we know. Mount Hermon is a real mountain. It's a rocky mountain. And at the foot of the mountain, I should say, are the villages of Caesarea Philippi, where Jesus and his friends already are. So the text and the land and the location of Caesarea Philippi also point to Mount Hermon as a site. But there's another tantalizing reason why I believe this is the place. Now, remember what we know about Roman places. Jesus would have avoided these Caesarea Philippi had a shrine to Pan, the little half-goat man where Roman soldiers on leave and Roman people would go up there and do nasty pan things. Jesus had no business being in a place like this unless he were on a mission to do something else. And this might help us understand the meaning of the transfiguration. Okay, they knew stories like we don't know stories. They knew the Bible like we don't know the Bible. They also knew that something happened in that area. Way back in Genesis chapter 12... God calls a man named Abram to leave a city and to go be different in the way that the Bible asks us to be different, to be in union with God, in union with his family, and to, and to be just and to be kind and to be obedient and to stay away from, from the cities that had fallen uh, far away from God's intention for his humanity. And so Abram would begin a new story of humanity and would be a witness to the rest of us on how to live, and that's the story of the Bible. God also made a promise to Abram that when he left, he would give him everything he ever wanted, which was a kid, a child, and some land to, to leave it to. His, his descendants would be numerous as the stars above his head. But the problem is that when God makes the promise, Abraham, Abraham has neither. He has neither. So when you get to Genesis chapter 14, Abram has sort of found a, a reason to be up in the north. Uh, the story of Abram is a story of going up and down and up and down in Judea. And there's a family problem. His nephew, Lot, has gotten into some trouble, and he's had to go north to a place called Dan, which is very near Mount Hermon, to fetch his nephew, and it's there he has a dream. Now, back in those days, people would make a covenant with a powerful neighbor so that the neighbor would protect them. They would make a covenant. Specifically, you would cut a covenant, especially someone like Abram, who would have to wander up and down the hills of Samaria, back and forth and back and forth, almost like the Bedouins who live today, uh, a nomadic existence. You had to have a powerful neighbor who would protect you. And so you would cut a covenant in a world that had very little writing. Uh, by cutting your hand, there would be a scar so that you could show that you were in a relationship with someone someone who would take care of you and prevent you from being attacked uh, by someone who might steal your stuff. That's what a covenant would do. So in Genesis chapter 15, after fetching Lot in Dan, which is at the foot of Mount Hermon, like where Caesarea Philippi would eventually be built, Abram has a dream. God asked Abram to cut animals and birds into two pieces, which is cutting a covenant, and there smoke and fire would go in between them and God would ratify the covenant. And Abram would be reminded, and then would be given a piece of God's name, Abraham, would be reminded that he would be God's people forever. Now, they too would have a cut, which would be a visible sign of their covenant, which would be the cut of circumcision. But on that night, at the foot of Mount Hermon, God would appear in smoke and in fire. Okay, here's the cool part. For generations... For generations and generations, people have gone to the foothills of Mount Hermon to reenact or to or to worship at this place called the Mount of Cleavings, where Abraham had the dream. I believe that it is quite possible that Jesus and his friends went to Cesarea Philippi to go to the same place where heaven touched earth again. That's the meaning of the transfiguration. God appeared to Abram in smoke and in fire in Genesis 15. God appeared to Peter, James, and John in the form of Jesus, glowing white, and a voice from a cloud, in Mark chapter 9. I believe it's the same story in the same place. God touching earth again. Remember what we've learned about Scripture. If God did something once, God will do it again and again and again. Let's also remember what we've learned today. If we feel it, God feels it. When we are different in the way that God asks us to be different, we will buy trouble. But on the other side of death, there's always resurrection. And isn't it fascinating that on the third day, when God raised his son Jesus from the dead, rendering those bones pure forevermore, God would, God would appear, or Jesus would appear rather, raised by God his Father in bodily form with scars, with scars on his hands. I believe the scars are the cut of our covenant with God, and nothing will keep us from God's love ever, ever, ever again this is why they're in Caesarea Philippi, for an experience of heaven-touching earth, and that eventually we would all know there's no going back. Our Messiah is our starting point, and we'll never be alone. Well, I hope you think that's as cool as I do, and hopefully that answers our question on why Jesus went to a Roman place. I hope I'll see you next week. Thanks, friends.